Hello, everybody. My name's Jess, and I'd like to welcome you to the first Brixton Book Jam for 2017. Thank you all for being here. So um, our first reader is Chris Jackson, who is a regular contributor to outlets such as Salon, The Hill, The Islamic Monthly, and Politics. His book, The Fragile Democracy, examines the Obama administration, the 2016 US election, Brexit, democracy in the ancient world, and the state of modern politics. Before becoming a freelance writer in 2015, Christopher trained as a lawyer and as a journalist. He's the author of The Gallery, which is a collection of poems. Please welcome to the stage, Chris Jackson. Thank you, everyone. Uh, I know I haven't got much time, so without further ado, a brief digression about William Shakespeare. In Hamlet, Marcellus observes that something is rotten in the state of Denmark. In Othello, Othello himself predicts that when he can no longer love Desdemona, chaos has come again. Shakespeare's tragedies show the superb variety of life. One might say they teem with a freedom which equates with one's best idea of America. But they also excel at showing the breakdown of systems as triggered by the character flaws of elevated men and women. Shakespeare understood that kingships and dukedoms are particularly vulnerable to the fragile psyche of the individual. In that sense, his plays might be said to open up onto democracy, though not even he could ever have imagined such a crazy thing as a US presidential election. Even so, democracy works by spreading this Shakespearean risk. All our individual fragilities, Antony's hedonism, Macbeth's ambition, our quirks and blind spots, mismanagements and griefs, are pulled together with whatever we can muster of common sense or insight, our good moments and better angels. At election time, the pot is stirred in the hope that a medicine of reasonableness shall emerge. Democracy is our remedy against ourselves. The hope is that the country which has chosen democracy moves down the years not along a series of King Lear or Hamlet-style crack-ups, where every individual hurt or scheme ripples miserably through the state, but slowly, even with a certain dullness toward the next generation. The first kind of system built around kings and their vulnerabilities gives us our epic poetry, our Homer and Virgil, Beowulf and Shakespeare. Democracy bequeaths instead a story in prose. The novel rose up as the only form able to accommodate the liberation of teeming multitudes. Ideas are shared, scientific progress is made. Piecemeal, but discernibly, the standard of living rises most countries, given the chance, including America, have deemed this worth a shot. That's how it's meant to go. And as we have seen, America has gone broadly that way. This is the America many of us love and revel in, the one we all look forward to visiting. It is the America which is kind, witty, and endlessly innovative. It is a place of sophistication and cheer which gives rise to lives we admire where the satires of Joseph Heller and Mark Twain complement the, the wistful wisdom of Marilyn Robinson, 
where the splurge of the Jackson Pollock canvas is shown next to the eerie works of Mark Rothko, where Einstein and Bohr have come to argue about the theory of everything, where death of a salesman is staged one night and Louis C.K. might be on the next. It is a place of untrammeled opportunity and even magnificence, a country that the founding fathers, quintessential enlightenment figures like Jefferson and Franklin would have delighted in. But this book shows glimmers of another story, a rarer one. It's rarer because for most people it proves a very bad option. We know it happens from time to time in history, but it's difficult to say how it does happen. All we know is that sometimes the subjects of a democracy become alienated en masse from the democratic process. It can be to do with fluctuations in national strength or fluctuations in mass perception of national strength and the fear and exclusion that comes from that. These things are always present in some degree, even in stable systems. But in the instances I am describing, fear sharpens and exclusion causes rage. Most importantly, someone comes along who articulates, but also takes advantage of these extreme emotions. Build a wall, cut the government, it's a revolution. Thanks very much, Chris, and uh, what a topical subject. Um, Chris's book is on sale at the bookstall at the back over there, um, and um, a lot of the works from our other writers here tonight are there, so take the time and the breaks to have a look at them. Um, our next writer um, is an urban anthropologist. Her name's Nazima Kadir, and her book, The Autonomous Life, is based on her experiences living and working in a squatters community in Amsterdam. She was there for over three years. Nazima has received awards from the Fulbright Program and the US National Science Foundation and has lived and worked in the US, Latin America, the Middle East, South Asia and Europe. Nazima currently lives in London and works in design and innovation. Please welcome to the stage Nazima Kadir. Um, hello, everyone. I just want to talk for 30 seconds about my book, which um, basically I'm an anthropologist, which meant that I lived and worked in this community of squatters for about three and a half years. And that is a social movement of anarchist squatters whose ideological foundations are to reject hierarchy and authority. <clears throat> and my entire book is about this community that, who's ideologically structured a, around rejecting hierarchy and authority and yet they end up inadvertently practicing hierarchy and authority. So in the section that I'm going about to read, I'm going to read about how to squat a house. And one term that I'm going to use again and again is the term cracksbreaker. And that is a term that means the squatting information hour, which is this, basically it's a self-organized group that meets once a week and helps people squat a house. So when I say that word, you will know what it means. The group meets at an assembly point, and once enough people arrive, someone briefs the group about the location of the house, its history, and the plan of the action. During the squatting action, everything comes together. The door has to be broken open quickly before the police are called by the neighbors. The squatting kit of table, bed, and chair are placed in each floor. 
enough people should be inside the squatted space before the police arrive, the door must be barricaded strongly enough to keep the police and others out who may want to evict, and enough people should stand outside the space to block the door to convince the people, the police, that they will violently resist if the police attempt to evict. Meanwhile, a member of the Kraksbreaker negotiates with the police as the official spokesperson for the action. Assuming the action is successful, everyone who participates drinks beer together, or more elaborately, shares a meal provided by those who squatted the house. After everyone has left, ideally, the newly squatted house should have an occupation schedule to ensure that the house is continually occupied in case of visits by the police or the owner during the first week. Dirk, who has been part of the movement for over 10 years, describes squatting actions as primarily social in-crowd scenes. He characterizes squatting actions as tedious and predictable. He connects his boredom with squatting actions as one of the reasons he stopped being active in the movement. I am bored with it. It's always the same. You go to an action, wait for half an hour, decide if you have enough people go there, enough people go there, kick open the door, and wait for the police. There's lots of waiting. The police say it's fine or not fine, sometimes with a little fight or at least an argument, and then they leave or they don't leave, and they evict you or they don't evict you the same day. It's always waiting. Every squat action is the same. I'm done with it. There are other people who can do it. The predictability and the ease with which most veteran squatters describe squatting actions mask the number of details necessary to execute the action and the amount of pressure felt by the squatters and the members of the Kraksbreaker planning the action to ensure its success. Before I became a squatter, squatters often encouraged me to start squatting. When I told them I was afraid, I received nonchalant responses about how squatting was easy, not a big deal, and anyone can do it. This is not true. If one detail is missing, there are dire consequences, immediate eviction, arrests, and violence. If such consequences occur due to a missing and foreseeable element, it's considered embarrassing and shameful for the cracksbreaker that organizes it, since they could have easily prevented the problem. At one squatting action I attended, all the elements proceeded as planned. However, the spokesperson told the police that the, pol that the house had stood empty for less than a year. He may have been drunk at the time. In consequence, the police decided to evict. At the time, I stood outside with the group guarding the outside door of the house, but found myself moved with the entire outside group to crowd around the newly squatted flat and line the staircase inside the house to square the police from evicting. Instead, the police called for backup, who, finding no squatters outside the building guarding the door, surrounded the building and gained control of the entrances and exits. The Kraksbreaker then negotiated intensively with the police and decided to leave the house because the police could have easily tear-gassed the inner staircase, arrested everyone, and evicted. Plus, the squatters for that house comprised a small family with a small child who the Kraksbreaker wanted to protect from the possible violence. Immediately after the retreat, the squatters at the action met to discuss why it had failed. The spokesperson was conspicuously absent at the meeting. After a long discussion, the most experienced squatters present, who also spoke the most, decided that the combination of the lack of a barricade 
propped against the outside building door, that the outside group had entered the building, and the spokesperson error led to the failure. Except for one experienced female squatter who criticized the spokesperson, the rest of the group of experienced squatters speaking in the meeting emphasized other missing elements over the spokesperson's error. For the next couple of days, I heard different members of this squatter's community who had not participated in this action criticize the tactical mistakes of the crackspeaker during the action, disdain the squatters of action for having bad luck and their disorganization, and derided the spokesperson as an irresponsible drunk. Thank you, Nazima. After leaving Ireland in the 1980s to travel the world, Jim Gleeson now lives in London. In his short stories, Jim sets memories against different backgrounds to tell tales of the shifting metropolis. Jim has published several short stories, including A Swan Called Frank, which was long listed for the 2016 London Short Story Prize. Please welcome Jim Gleeson. Hi, this is a new piece I'm working on about going back and trying to fix things you've broken in the past. Tonight the joint will jump and jostle like a Wild West saloon, but this bright afternoon the stately old boozer is cathedral quiet. Beer kegs rumble by the window like gunpowder barrels and a solid looking soul steps in, calling over as though I've never left. Frank, how goes the battle? Taking care of business, Johnny. Johnny's talking, but his eyes work the room. He's the sheriff round here keeps a photo of his glory days above the bar, moving on a hurling pitch with a look in his eye like an angry badger. All are welcome here for a belly full of beer. Just have your fun and take your troubles home. Johnny stepping up like Spartacus with the hurley in his grip cools any hostile atmosphere like rain on a riot. I washed up back in Brixton like a shipwrecked sailor, back on the wreckage of the life I left, and I sit philosophizing over a slow pint, unwinding tangles of memory and regret watching specks of dust tumble through bars of sunshine like tiny astronauts. I've sheltered in France for almost two years, but my French is still merit, and I've dragged my troubles back like a suitcase full of stones. Running brought some bogus peace, but now I need to face what lies ahead. I'm here to meet a man with a good heart and a terminal disease. He'll soon come and we'll begin. I've walked the streets for hours, letting London soak back into my bones. A tsunami of hungry money has washed in, and cranes are spaced across the skyline like watchtowers. I passed an old memorial, dismal and weather-beaten, leaning on the wall of Stockwell Tube Station. Police with guns chased the wrong man down and dragged his carcass from a carriage. Collateral damage in a war on terror, they tell us we can win. I've been back ten days, come to face the future, and soon I'll be stepping up like a fugitive to the front desk of Brixton Police Station. I ran to exile after some half-remembered scuffle over a mobile phone, a trivial thing. Police came like a man shoving his fist in a birdcage, but I fluttered past and flew away to exile, but that brought no answers. Hours of drink and solitude and unlikely wild scenarios stacked up and scattered until one true option showed itself. Go back and get busy living. I had a son once in the other life, lost to me now. One more small statistic in the ledgers of the state and howling at foreign moons will never draw him close. In the mirror, that man looks like bigger me, 
I've been hauling wood and digging ditches, eating like a champion, to bulk up and look a little meaner. That might help where I'm heading, but there's still a shine of fear in the eyes. I checked the time, he'll be here soon. Theodore Montgomery, we called him Rock and Ted. The man's got a law degree and a healthy appetite for whiskey and weed. We shared grim news over a late night bottle once, and though I don't remember whether his dark prognosis had to do with lungs or liver, I remember terminal. He'll be my mouthpiece with the police to find out just how deep a hole I've dug. We'll sail out soon to tilt at windmills like Don Quixote. The door swings back and in walks Ted with his lived-in face and his slept-in suit and short buttons straining to escape. He shuffles to the bar, raising an eyebrow at me and holding his thumb and finger a couple of inches apart, and I smile back. One for the road, why not? He walks over and we toast without talking, clinking glasses and watching liquor catch the light like stained glass. Thanks for coming, Ted, I said. I need your help. You're a good man. Ted shrugged. Once or twice I've been better than bad, he said vaguely, as if integrity was some small thing. It's bad to leave unfinished business for too long. It comes back to bite you, and it's bad for the soul. Good advice, I said. Time to leave the poison in the past. And you, man, you said you had some serious business going on. What's your news? Ted smiled, but his eyes were dull. Call me a work in progress. It'll end when it's ready. We let silence lie there full of things unsaid, then talked about old times and those who'd moved to different lives. I finished first and stood. Ted swilled the last drop down and heaved himself to his feet. The big old grin was back. Let's start it, Frank. Sooner it'll be finished. We'll have a proper drink when the job is done. As we stepped out, Johnny gave a short salute and turned back to rally his troops. We walked into Brixton, past the academy and across the street towards the police station, by the tree outside with gnarly roots pushing up flagstones, trunks strung with flowers and pictures of the last man lost in custody. I thought of Stockwell and knew that London was still a city built on money and memorials, and if you're not a lucky one, they'll mark your time with old photographs and dying flowers. Ted saw me hesitate and laid his hand on my shoulder. Come on, kid, he said. It's showtime. Thanks very much, Jim. Our next writer, Tony White, is the author of several novels, including Foxy T, which was described by Glasgow's Herald on Sunday as one of the best London novels you'll ever get to read. His forthcoming novel, The Fountain in the Forest, will be published by Faber in 2018. Tony has been writer in residence at the Science Museum and at the US UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies, and he is currently chair of London's award-winning arts radio station, Resonance 104.4 FM. Um, <laughs> Tony's, um, oh, sorry, I just wanted to say that Tony is a staunch advocate of the, say, the various campaigns to save our local libraries. His new, <laughs> yay. Um, and his new work uh, is called a, a Place Free of Judgment, um, which includes the story he's going to read from, Zombies Ate My Library, which he describes as a love letter to libraries. Please welcome Tony White. Thank you. Let's get the mic. It should be called uh, Zombies Closed, my library. Uh, okay, I've got five minutes. It was probably not surprising that before Janet woke him up, Gareth had been having a bad dream. That's it for chapter 19. 
chapter 20. It was one of those nightmares where you know that you're dreaming, but it doesn't help. Before Janet came and woke him up, Gareth and the library cat had been looking out of the front window of the library. They were watching all the people, so many in their zombie outfits. This never-ending parade of Halloween drunks that staggered along high green from the marketplace past the Linford Arms and Bar Sport. The cat was pointing at this shambolic procession with their fake blood and bandages and plastic fangs and the cat's voice sounded a bit like Santa's voice and it was saying, Once library closed. Astley Bridge closed. Castle Hill closed. Heaton closed. Carnegie closed. Shush, said Gareth, turning to the cat. They'll hear you. Oops, said the cat. Too late. One of the drunks had stopped and was turning to look in their direction. A middle-aged man in a crumpled suit, barefoot with his shirt untucked and tie askew. Gareth and the cat stopped still, hoping he would turn back and continue on his way. But to Gareth's horror, the man caught his eye and started shambling across Manor Avenue towards them. He was moaning and groaning. Was he so drunk that he couldn't speak? Gareth's dad got like that sometimes. Well most nights. He's trying to say something, said the cat. They listened. Gareth wasn't sure, but it sounded as if he was yelling about asset transfer, whatever that was, and a restructuring that will fundamentally change the way in which the service operates. The new flatter setup, he moaned, is based on a business development unit, delivering audience and product development and business delivery units, which will interface with the audiences day to day. Scary stuff said the cat. You're telling me, said Gareth. What does it mean? I'm not sure, said the cat, but it doesn't sound good. Behind him, another zombie was screaming something about creating a set of ambitious proposals that will be fully tested and understood as we proceed, given the unknown decisions that are due to be taken. Hundreds of zombies seemed to be tripping over each other in their rush to join the attack, and within seconds, the library was surrounded. Are they trying to attack us, do you think? Gareth asked the cat or the library itself. Perhaps both, said the cat calmly. Either way, I think we ought to go upstairs and warn the others before they break down the doors. And with that, the cat sprang down to the floor, then turned to Gareth and said, um, you don't happen to know if any of your friends already have zombie escape plans, do you? Hundreds of zombies and counting were now all screaming incomprehensible and euphemistic policy wonk jargon about property strategies and healthy living agendas at the top of their blood-curdling voices as they tried to break down the door. An efficient service, they screamed in deathly unison, must make the best use of the assets available in order to meet its core objectives and vision, recognizing the constraints on council resources. Decisions about the service they yelled, must be embedded within a clear strategic framework. Gareth didn't wait to find out what this gobbledygook meant. He quickly followed the cat upstairs, where it was already dishing out orders to Tommy, Roxana, and Alice. The friends had already built a barricade out of tables, and now Alice was going to and fro as fast as she could, dragging books from the shelves, carrying them on her lap, and dumping them by the barricades. Knowledge is power, she said, laughing, or in this case, ammo. Come on, Gareth, we need as many books as we can get, and the heavier the better. Gareth realized that whatever they were going to do, they'd have to be quick about it, because 
downstairs, they could hear the crash of breaking glass as the zombie hordes breached the front doors and spilled noisily into the library. As one, they turned and began to stagger stairwards. Give him everything you got, yelled Tommy, hurling an ergonomic office chair over the balustrade. Chairs, tables, anything. The council intends roared one of the lurching horde, to explore how the site could best deliver both a capital receipt and a revenue stream before his rotting head was knocked off by a rotary magazine display rack. Go to hell, said the friends as books and tables, what's on leaflets and bound copies of the Public Libraries and Museums Act 1964 rained down on the mouldering multitudes below, but it seemed that nothing could stop them. Cover me cried Alice, manoeuvring her wheelchair into position before flipping open the armrests to reveal a pair of fake Chanel pale pink patent leather quilt effect mini grenade launchers. Oh, cool, said Gareth. Where'd you get those? A charity shop in Cheshire, she said. I thought they were champagne coolers. Before losing first one, boom, and then another projectile, bam, into the throng where they exploded. Woof in a spray of vaporized zombie flesh. But still they came, and Alice simply couldn't load the grenades fast enough, wave after wave of them staggering up the stairs and slipping on the putrescent flesh of their fallen fellows, until suddenly the friends were overwhelmed. And Gareth, wretched in disgust, as one of the zombies lunged forward, grabbed his shoulder, and prepared to bite off a chunk Gareth, love, it said. Wake up, darling. The zombie's face suddenly softened in a very mysterious way. It was the kind librarian come to the rescue. Are they gone? He asked sleepily. Did we win? Then, looking around, he laughed and said, Oh, I think me and the cat might have been having a nap. Yay, the library cat, said Sanna. I wondered where he'd gone. It's a she, said Gareth, authoritatively. Janet looked at them both slightly askance, and the hairs stood up on the back of Sanna's neck when the librarian said, What cat? Sanna wondered if Janet might be about to cry. Looking outside, she noticed that the car Janet had arrived in was a police car. No, listen, Gareth, said Janet. Wake up, darling. Something's happened at home, love. I'm afraid I've got some bad news. I'll leave it there. Thank you. <laughs> Zombies ate my library. Um, I should I'll just say, uh, if there are any, any veterans of the Save Carnegie Library and the Save Lambeth Library's campaign here. Some of the zombie dialogue may have sounded a bit familiar, uh, and that's because it was lifted wholesale uh, for satirical purposes uh, from Lambeth Council's notorious Culture 2020 report. Uh, thank you very much, Zombies Ate My Library.